welcome everyone to week seven of the book of Revelation and End Times. We are looking at chapters six and seven today, so hope you enjoy. Okay, great. So we left off at verse 12 in chapter five. So verse 12, chapter five. And if you remember chapter 5, exactly what chapter 5 is, it's basically John is, is in this spiritual realm and he sees God sitting on this throne and then he sees a scroll in his right hand and he wonders who's worthy to open that scroll and he weeps. He doesn't think anybody is. And then the angel says, don't weep. Or, or the elder does, and says, don't weep. And then basically uh, the lamb shows up, that's Jesus. He shows up and he takes the scroll and he has the scroll on his hand and he is about to open up the seals. There's seven seals on this scroll. And we talked about the seals. That was a normal thing within the Roman culture about how you would have a last will and testament with seven seals, seven witnesses. And so that is an image that is well known to the folks, the early first century Christians reading this. And we had just came off the verses that talk about how this lamb is not a lion. This lamb is an important piece of the underlining theology of Revelation is this lamb theology that true power comes from the blood of the lamb. And that is the new thing that God has done through Jesus Christ. That was a new thing that he had done, uh, of course, in the first century. And then for us now, as we apply it to our life. And so although these images are strange and unusual, it's the interpretation of the images that's vitally important in uh, the apocalyptic literature. So Jesus was the ransom for for the saints of every tribe, language, and people and nation, as Scripture said. And that brings us kind of up to where we are now, where uh, there's a lot of, of creation, people, everybody in, in heaven, paradise, whatever this realm is, and they are all praising, praising Jesus, the Lamb. So, And that's where the rest, basically verse 12 through the rest of the chapter, Singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So all of this image is for Christ in this scene that's going on. All this worship is for Jesus. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of all creation's worship, all um, the faithful's worship. Worship is about him. Worship is about God. It's You can apply it to our own lives in, in that sense. Uh, makes it 
applicable to us today is worship is about God. It's because he is worthy. It's what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. It's not about us. Now, a lot of times worship is about us. We care about our style. We care about our ways. We care about the things that we want to happen during worship or in worship. But you can worship in any style, in any way, in any place if you are worshiping God and not your own traditions or styles or whatever it is. Um, And that's an important thing for us. I think that, to me, that comes out here because worship is central to the book of Revelation as well. But everything, for me, starts and ends with worship. Because if we are not worshiping God, if we're not worshiping Christ, basically we're worshiping something because we are built to worship and it's important for us to know that not only the church needs, everything needs to begin with worship, whether that's on a Sunday morning or Saturday night or Wednesday or whatever, it's, it's, that's the time when the saints get together, right? And we assemble as a church, especially in our church where we have multiple services and now we have online uh, participants, but still, whether you're in person or online, you're all gathering and at least it's somewhat of the same time to, to join together and praise God for what he has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And that's that's the should be the the focus of our worship, and that's what it is here. So in verse 13, um, they are worshiping um, the the power of the Lamb. They're not worshiping power. They're not worshiping Rome's power. They're not worshiping a Caesar or a president or a governor or anything. They're worshiping the the one who was slain for them. And it's interesting to me in verse 13 where it says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. And so under the earth is actually a term for Hades. And so people in Hades, whatever that is, um, we're worshiping God as well. So you could think of the reign of Christ goes beyond death. Um, that is a biblical truth we would all believe, hopefully. And so all people, all creation, all nature are praising Jesus Christ. And so what a beautiful picture and, uh, and call to action, really, in response of who Jesus is. So any, any questions on that, that part? Any thoughts, any comments? All right. Um, I want to sort of give us an ability to stay focused, and I'm trying to do that because... As we were talking with the men this morning, at times, our, our, you know, we, we chase after things in our brains because of the images and what could this be, and, and we're trying to interpret things in a, in a healthy way. And so I want to keep us on this sort of level playing field and keeping our understanding of the power of the Lamb as an under, you know, uh, a narrative running underneath everything in... We talked about last week, just at the end, you know, how the the lamb power goes with us. We believe the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so we have to choose. We're getting an image in Revelation still, and we will get it even more so as we move into other chapters, that there is a way of the lamb and there's a way of the beast. 
because the beast is about to come up in the next six chapters. So there's a way of the, the lamb, which is conquering by vulnerable sacrificial love. Okay, And I know that's totally different than the world's way of doing things because the way of the beast is a world of violence. It's a world of power and might in the sense of military power or overtaking somebody because you have the advantage. It's conquering by military power, and that's what we're about to see. Or it's even conquering by particular... Um, uh, ruling of a, of, a, of a party or a policy or things like that. But the way of the lamb, you can think about it as communion. Um, communion is a, is a beautiful symbol of that because we are eating of the body and the blood of Christ. We aren't literally eating it, but we are symbolically eating the very sacrifice. This is the power of that has been given to us because of what Christ has done. And so when we follow the Lamb, we are our lives aren't always going to be safe. Our lives aren't always going to be secure. It involves suffering. I mean, we literally in communion are eating of our Savior in a symbolic way that he sacrificed. He was vulnerable. And so that's the way of the Lamb. And that's way different than the world again. And so at the heart of God, is a slain lamb, sacrificed for all people, all time. It's the key to the book that the slain lamb has somehow conquered all heaven and earth, and it didn't do it through the beast's way or the military way or the world's way. It did it through God's way, right, in a sacrificial, vulnerable sacrificial way. So the lamb is, again, the central figure of worship here, and his way of doing things is very, very important. And that is the underlining narrative and where we move into chapter 6. So chapter 6 is where the seven seals begin to be broken. And this is where it really gets a little crazy from imagery because we begin to see death and destruction and things like that in our modern understanding of apocalypse where we, we think it's all about war and it's all about death, it's all about destruction and God's coming to do all that. We're going to see this is not God doing this death and destruction stuff. This is God, if you theological terms, God allowing it. God has always allowed free choice. You and I can kill who we want to kill if we so. There are consequences to that, of course. Um, we can rule our country the way we want to rule our country. There might be consequences to that if it's not done in the right way. So this has been going on for generation after generation after generation. So when you look at this and people say this is where the tie-in of Revelation and the end times comes, because we often think, well, it's the end of times. I mean, look at all the wars going on. Look at COVID. Look at look at all this uh, horrible stuff going on with protests and and you know and oppression of certain races and all, I mean all this stuff that you know we haven't gotten any better than where we were or whatever. And so sometimes we um, we get to where we think we get so individualistic, especially in America, we think everything's about us. Right. And so it must be our generation who's going to see the end of times. Well, this was written long ago and they saw all the same stuff we saw. 
Um, and throughout history, we have seen all the same stuff, you know, and even worse than what we're enduring right now. Um, life in America isn't all that bad, really, if you think about it. Uh, we have a lot of resources, a lot of things compared to life in other times. So um, we can't always look at Revelation and go, well, who is that white, you know, person on the white horse? And, oh, that's that person, you know, trying to do that and assign those things is really, a, I think, a, a n- not a healthy way to do interpretation of this. So we're going to look at some of the underlining understanding of first century context, and that's going to help us, of course, see maybe exactly what this is talking about. So let's look at chapter 6, verses 1 through, I'll do 8. 1 through 8. We're going to do the first four seals. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Those words, conquering and conquer, again, those are important. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come, and I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the oil, olive oil, and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come. I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and by the wild animals of the earth. Okay, so now we're into some weird, weird stuff. Not only did we have the lamb that had seven eyes and seven horns earlier, which is a little weird, but we also now have sort of this death and destruction, World War III type stuff uh, happening upon the world. Now, I would put it in context and say, just like I said before, there has been war and strife for, for since the beginning of man, right, uh, humankind. So... Um, after Adam and Eve uh, got kicked out of the garden. So this is not anything new. So what is this? Is this a future prediction of of what will happen? Maybe not. Maybe this has already happened. Uh, Maybe this happened before. Maybe this will happen in the future. Maybe this is a cycle, as I've heard, uh, a cycle of prophecy in some sense that just happens over and over and over again. And do we have a choice to stop that cycle? Maybe we do. We have something different now. We have the way of the lamb and not the way of the beast, but uh, that's probably for a whole other discussion. So if you look at the lamb opens the first seal, so Jesus opens the first seal, and we have similar imagery of chariots. If you're writing notes down in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and you can read it later. Uh, just a summary is there's four chariots God unleashes Basically, it's God's spirit, it says, patrolling the earth in judgment. Now, 
Those chariots were unleashed at that time in Zechariah in judgment, not in death. God was not going out to kill anybody. He didn't bring his sword and was slashing people's heads off because they didn't believe or didn't do what he wanted. That's not what it was. It was God patrolling, God checking things out. Now, this is a little different, even though we get some similar imagery here. Okay. Um, verse 2, uh, a lot of people, the the first chariot or first person on a chariot, a lot of people on this white horse, uh, sorry, on this white horse, people think, well, gosh, that's Jesus, you know, coming with his bow and he's going to kill all those people that don't agree with him and haven't believed in him or whatever. This is not a, this is not a picture of Jesus here. So we got to get that out of our minds. I mean, Jesus is still... He's the one opening the seals, okay? This is something different. What is this? Well, um, this is the image that exactly would happen in the Roman times, where a Roman general, if they were victorious, would ride into town on a white horse with a crown on their heads. And that meant victory. That meant military victory. Now, also, a bow, this person has a bow. A bow is also military power. Uh, in Psalm 46, 9, there's a reference to that. But there's also a time in, and I, I should have looked it up, but I think it's 69 AD. There, Rome was trying to overthrow the Parthian Empire, or at least try to take some of its territory. The Parthians rode white horses, and they were the greatest bowmen in all of the world. And Rome could not conquer the Parthian Empire because of that. And so if you're reading this as a first century person, you might know the legend of the Parthians and how they defeated Rome as Rome tried to overtake them. And you might also understand that, that hey, I saw some Roman general wander into town and on a white horse with a crown and a bow or whatever. And so you have this imagery of conquering again. And we hear in Revelation chapter 12 that conquering Satan happens. The new way of the Lamb is that, you know, that we conquer by our testimony, by the blood of the Lamb and by our testimony, our witness. So again, the way of the Lamb is different than this military power. So you get a perfect, this is tragedy because of military conquest right here. That's the picture you get is military conquest and God allows people to do as they so choose they can respond to him in faith they can respond to their neighbor in love or they can just join the military conquest and go out there and run their country or their empire or whatever in any particular way they want so this is that will it come true in the end times like this who knows it, com it comes true all the time it's coming true right now right there's military conquest all the time now so and there was before. And we get the second seal broken in verse 3. And in, in verse 4, we hear that this is, this is basically man versus man, nation versus nation, human versus human. This is international strife that is allowed to happen, which we've, gosh, we've had international strife, strife since the beginning of time. We still have international strife, right? And you have this, it says in verse 4, 
and he was given a great sword. Again, this is military sword. We hear the sword Jesus has. We already saw that image of God's sword coming out of the mouth. It's a double-edged sword. It's a word of truth, right? And so this is a different, again, contrasting the way the lamb with human or the, the way of the beast, uh, the way of the world. So any uh, questions, thoughts on those first four verses? Anybody have anything? Um, if you would like to take notes as well, and you're taking notes, there are judgments in chapter 6, okay, that basically, or you could say what has been unleashed, allowed to be unleashed, not so much judgment by God's judgment, but this is sort of man's ability to do as man sees fit um, or humanities uh, what they want to do you can contrast or even find parallels with that within the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke john has no uh, apocalyptic in his gospel no uh, talking about judgment future judgments okay and maybe that was because he ultimately talks about it in Revelation as the author of Revelation. But in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about these things. In Mark 13, he talks about the end of times or what will happen. And then Luke 21. So Jesus talks, there is going to be, and he says, these things soon will come to pass. Again, not a prediction of 2020. That's a basically this is a way of life and that humanity has chosen for some reason. And these things are coming to pass, Jesus says. But there's going to be war. He says there's going to be international strife. If you look at all the the various scriptures, famine, disease, persecution, earthquakes, and what we will look at in the future uh, soon as decreation, as creation begins to fall apart and be decreation, which is a new term and word. So anyway, so we have this other black horse uh, person, this rider has scales in the hand, um, really uh, talks about this, you know, the weighing of things, the daily wage, those type of things, and famine. This is a, a symbol of famine, even almost a, an idea of judgment upon Israel. Why do we tie in Israel to this? Because there were three main crops in in that time in Israel, and they were corn, wine, and oil. And we hear here, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. And so, and anyway, so there's a there's a tie in there to perhaps Israel, uh, a day's pay, denarii, um, uh, four pence. If you kind of want to know, your Bible might use different words than a day's pay, um, and then. Verse uh, And then in verse 7 is the four seals open. And when he heard that four seal, then all of a sudden there's this pale green horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Death was... Uh, uh, Hades followed with him. He had this sword. He had the ability also to, have, to cause famine, pestilence, wild animals to kill people. I mean, this is just, you know, total mayhem, right? And I would say we could look back in any day in history and probably see this sort of thing occurring. Um, 
Any any thoughts on any of those? And I'll. Yes. In the the fifth chapter five, mm-hmm. he's opening the wheel, right? Yes, he's like, opening this wheel, right? scroll. Uh huh. Like, this is our inheritance. This is who we are as man. Is that what it's really in, in chapter six? Is it almost saying like this is this is what we've inherited <laughs> a little bit, right? So uh, it wouldn't be the contents inside the scroll would be the story of redemption and total okay. restoration. So these are the seals. Like this is, I'm going to break this seal because this is the way y'all been acting for generations. And I'm going to break that seal and I'm going to break that seal. And then when we get to the actual, you know, we don't get to the seventh seal till chapter eight. And there are some things, but ultimately this is just apocalyptic literature trying to get people to repent. Again, these are these the letters in chapter, you know, the first chapters were to Christians in churches, right? Not to the rest of the world or anything. So this is like God trying to tell people that he does have a new he has an inheritance for them, something new and it's the new way of the lamb. So hang in there. No matter what comes your way, whether it's war or pestilence or persecution, I win in the end. Okay. I'm victorious. I mean, the I was slain. They killed me. They hung me on a cross, and I'm still victorious. So just because Rome thinks they're going to win by military might and power, and they get to control all the wages and all that stuff, it doesn't matter. In the end, we win. Okay. So is, hopefully that summarized it a little bit for what you're thinking about because i agree it does kind of seem weird you know all these things open up this is our inheritance like this is what god's given us you know this is like terrible you know but i don't i don't think that that's the case we're not even there yet you know to the inheritance is is it any significance like in the first four seals it's always the creature so is it like this is who earth is this is who man is right right there's i mean there's a lot of that that's, I mean, again, it's, we have to keep that underlining narrative of this is who we are. This is who, this is our, we have the choice. We, we talked about with the guys this morning is we have the choice of how we run our countries or how we deal with things. Like even people who have been in war, some of those guys were saying, you know, no one wins. It's just that somebody loses worse than the other person, you know? Um, so something to, something to think about as well. So, so there's four powerful, we've already seen four powerful horses of Roman power. Okay. And that's conquest or victory or conquering Nike, right? We've seen war, we've seen famine and we've seen death. So that's what Rome will get you. That's what the beast gets you, okay? And that's what the ways of the world gets you, okay? Each represents a different and terrifying aspect of Rome or of some imperial, you know, nation empire. Um, That's where we have to be real careful as America, and we have to say, are we the new Rome? You know, I mean, you have to be real careful, 
in, in what our policies are, how we deal foreign policies, how we deal with other people, how we use our military might, and things like that. Again, chapter 11 and chapter 13, we will see the beast, and the beast represents Rome. We will find that it represents Rome. I mean, you can say it's something else or whatever, but it represented Rome, the symbol, the understanding of Rome. And in Revelation 12:11, we hear, you know, you can defeat the beast by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. I keep repeating that because I want that to be our narrative when we come out of Revelation instead of like horribleness, you know, and death and destruction and all that stuff. So we live in this in-between time between when Satan was expelled from heaven, okay, and when before Satan is thrown into the abyss. And we live in this in-between time. Okay, and so there is a little bit of chaos going on and all that stuff. So Satan's going to be thrown into the abyss in chapter 20. So we got a lot of present day or past day stuff to kind of deal with. And it's, it's not, Revelation is not trying to advocate. This is where people get it wrong I, because it's not biblical it's not healthy biblical understanding because that's not who God is and that's not what God ordains. But it's not an advocation of the use of violence or bloodshed. I mean, this is a mess, not a message of terror defeats terror with more terror. That's why worship and is so vitally important to the central images. It's, it's remember who really holds the power and really holds the victory, and that's Jesus, who is the slain lamb, okay? And nowhere in Revelation does it say that God's people wage war. You will not find that, even though that's the great and fictitious uh, Left Behind series, they wage war, all this stuff. We become victors and we become conquerors by faith, and understanding the sacrifice Jesus made for us and, and keeping that faith, okay? So we've already encountered that, and nowhere will we see that the God's people need to wage war. Why don't we need to wage war? Because the blood that's needed has already been spilt. That's Jesus. That's the only blood that we've ever needed to, to have victory. And so we don't need to spill any more blood, so war in Revelation is something done against God's people, not something done by God's people, okay? God's people are, uh, the beast makes war against God's people, and God's people need protection from the beast. Again, it's not something God's saints or the lamb actually practice. We never see the lamb waging war. We never, um, some people might... We, well, I'll say this first. Victory ultimately is ours, and it comes through sacrifice, faith, and the Lamb, not by Armageddon. Now, you might need to, you might go and you might go, well, it talks about a battle at the end. Has anybody ever read that portion of Revelation? Does anybody know how long that battle lasts? It doesn't even last. It's like already won. Like, literally. It's like God, like Christ comes with, his heavenly armies and it's like it's already done like there's no there's no battle i mean basically he just chunks satan into the abyss so there's no like 
death in that sense. Um, so God wages war on the cross. Again, I know I'm being preachy today, but a lot of this is we got to keep this as central to our understanding to this book. Any any thoughts? Any comments on that? As we move before we move on. <clears throat> okay. Well, let's look at these other uh, the fifth and sixth seal, and the rest of this uh, chapter. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God, for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops into its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the ma uh, magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, that's some, that's some freaky stuff right there, right? And um, it has a lot of interesting language. So let's let's uh, really dive into that. First of all, the picture of an altar, which I love. It's it, the altar is mentioned like four times in Revelation. And um, why were these people killed? These people were killed because of. <laughs> The blood of the Lamb, the Word of God, right? Because they believed in Jesus and they had a testimony. They had faithfulness. And that's what got them martyred or martyre is the word there. Um, and we can be uh, called to sacrifice ourselves, not so much just physical death, but we are called to sacrifice ourselves each and every day for the ways of the Lamb, right? And so we martyr ourselves in some particular way in a sacrificial love. Now, these uh, in verse 10, there's cries of the saints. Their, their lives have been laid down for God as a true offering. And um, they've been given, in verse 11, they've been given white robes, purity, right? Um, more and, and more we're going to be persecuted for being believers. We hear that as well. So there's no vengeance or judgment here the the lamb basically says hey hold on you know we got other stuff coming okay and so that's kind of where we find ourselves uh, entering into the sixth seal which is verse 12 and then we get earthquakes we get what's called deconstruction or decreation sorry of con uh, decreation is it's not so much literal um, a lot of times we're wondering well when is the moon going to turn you know, blood red, and when's the sun going to be black as sackcloth? 
um, again, this is apocalyptic literature. This is like the world, you know, we, we look back in the Middle Ages and we say those were the Dark Ages, right? Um, very similar uh, understanding here that these are dark, dark times. Sackcloth was used for mourning, uh, so people in the first century would would understand that. Jewish people use sackcloth for times of mourning, and so, um, you know, um, the full moon becomes like blood. I mean, there's blood. Um, whose blood is already spilled? Jesus' blood. So Jesus maybe, I mean, you can look at all sorts of, of images here, but the deacon... Decreation continues in the in the sixth seal being broken, but you get Rome's power. You got you got Rome's power and conquest that they are amazing. They're everywhere, and we hear right here in verse fifteen that this what is going to happen is going to affect everyone. It's going to affect all the. The Romans is going to affect all the races. It's going to affect all their stat. Anybody with status, rich, poor, whatever, it's going to affect all nations. So um, nobody is exempt from other things that could happen to them, right? From others or the worldly ways of the world. And judgment is going to come upon the nation for allowing Rome to be Rome. Judgment is, you could say... Um, as people called on the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the the wrath of God, right? I mean, it's like, what do we need to? Well, we're 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 hiding from the judgment upon the nations for allowing power to be power in the wrong way, I guess, and embracing worldly ways, and ultimately not repenting. What could these people have done right here? Don't hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Repent. Right and embrace what has been given to you is the solution. So we don't see the actual, the right reaction here. Any thoughts, questions? I know that's some interesting stuff. So, some weird stuff. Again, I would say be real careful of placing modern day interpretation on all of this saying, well, looks like God's just going to squash people with those rocks, you know. Um, I think God has another idea. Um, these just people have not figured it out for some apparent reason, or they didn't want to react in the same way. So, again, then the right way, and so they're reacting in a worldly way. So, again, picture of a call to repentance. And do we know if this is going to happen? Maybe this has happened in the past. Maybe this is going to happen in the future. We've talked about that. This is all conditional on people repenting so, as well. Okay, let's move into 7. Chapter 7. Uh, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 
144,000 sealed out of every tribe of people of Israel. From the the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simon, Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Askar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. I'll stop there for now. Um, So, we have four angels, and we're like, wow, this is strange again. During John's time... um, John's time, people believed that the earth was flat, okay? And even they might believe the earth was square. And they also believed that winds that blew directly north, south, east, and west, like directly from the north, directly from the south, east, west, were favorable winds, okay? Now, winds that blew diagonally were winds that were harmful, Okay, and not favorable. So we have four angels standing in four different corners in a square, right? And they're holding back the winds, and they're holding back those diagonal winds. Um, They're holding back, you could say, uh, the winds of judgment, okay? And they're going to unleash these unfavorable winds. So that's kind of the image that you get here. And then we hear about the mark of God, the seal of God. Okay, hey, don't do that until these folks have been marked and sealed. And um, it's basically a source of possession because slaves were marked, um, others were marked, you know. So it's the faithful ones will endure, okay, the marked ones. You could say these folks were marked with the Holy Spirit. Um, you could say we as believers in Christ were marked with the Holy Spirit, we're marked with God's you know, seal of God in our life. And so we will endure. And what will we endure? We have victory and we will conquer life and death, right? Because of Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection of Christ. And so we understand that to be true. It doesn't matter what happens to us. We will have victory over life and death. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 9, there's a little bit of this imagery. If you want to go look that up, you can. In verse 2, we hear that this um, uh, angel uh, ascending from the rising of the sun. So the rising of the sun was in the east, right? Is in the east, the setting in the west. And this is a god of light. This is a symbol for the god of light. This, this angel is a god of light of you know serves a god of light and life churches were built always facing the east the rising of the sun so that's something else to always uh, think about as well and especially in the early times they were in verse four and we hear he heard the number of those who were sealed one hundred forty four thousand who are they well um one denomination, I think it's Church of Christ, would think it's there's only 144,000 people that are going to be saved. 
Um, that's somewhat problematic because we just came off of a couple of verses that say there's a myriad of myriads and multiple, you know, I mean, there's just so many people you basically can't even count. And so what does this count? Why are we counting only certain people that have been marked in this particular way? Well, numbers are very important to Revelation. And so you would say, again, this is not literal, this is symbolic. And so what is the symbol behind 144,000? Well, 12 by 12 by 1,000. If you take 12 and 12, complete numbers, uh, and then you multiply by a multi like by 10 of some, you know, 1,000 multiples of 10, you have this sort of complete and perfect number of people. Um, and what is a perfect and complete number of people? All those who have been faithful and are faithful to God. Um, some people might say that it's the Jews who became Christian as well, because there's a number of these tribes. Um, some people might say it's all the people that are present at this very moment in time, whenever this particular thing happened or will happen. But I would just see this as a healthy, symbolic number of drawing in the past, the Jewish tribes, that God was at work at that time through his chosen people, and he is work with uh, others in their present time. So that's just kind of my take on things as I've studied and looked at all the different options. So any thoughts, questions on that before we get into the 12 tribes? If you got your little uh, piece of paper uh, about the 12 tribes, if you got to open that, I, I sent that because it's a picture of the encampment and how God told them to set up. And you've probably seen that before. The encampment of the 12 tribes in the desert as they moved along had... Uh, it was in the shape of a cross, which is really cool to think about, right? And in the center was the tabernacle, was where, you know, where God's presence was. Now, we have something unusual in the naming of the 12 tribes here. Manasseh is um, usually included in the tribe of Joseph, and if you look at the encampment thing, does anybody pick out from the encampment image what name wasn't listed here in the 12 tribes? If you want to, if anybody's got that, you can look at it. But you know, like. Dan? Dan, that's right. Dan. So Dan, for um, whenever... Dan had uh, been replaced because the understanding was is that the Antichrist was going to come out of the tribe of Dan. Got me. Don't know. Just one of the thoughts. So that's out there. And isn't that interesting how that had been replaced? So um, anyway, um, so verse 9 uh, we have all these, you know, tribes. Verse 9, it, it said, After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count. So we just came off this number. It's got, it's, I mean, to me, just, it's even common sense to think that that's a symbolic number. I mean, you got 144,000 people sealed with the, you know, for God, with the seal of God on there. But then you also got this, after that, I looked and there was a great multitude no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, 
with palm branches in their hands. So those saved would basically, John looks and sees them, they're just uncountable. I mean, you just can't even count the amount of people that are up there. So you, you get a, to me, you get a rebuking of the idea that only 144,000 people were going to be saved anyway. And even out of a particular generation, I don't think that that to be true. So you get this, this number of myriads and myriads. I mean, just there's so many. The multitude is just uncountable. And so the faithful at this point in time, think about it. All that's going on that we've already heard and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, if you're on earth, there might be some interesting stuff going on. These folks that John sees the faithful are not weary and they are not worn. They're victorious and they're worshiping, right? They're robed in white with palm branches in their hands and they cry out in a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. So they're up there worshiping. So they're not up there worn out. They're not up there defeated. They're not up there all bloodied, all that stuff. And so they're up there. Their testimony is, is that the conquering of God happened and it happened through the salvation of, because of the salvation of, you know, the lamb. Like we are saved through the, the, the work of the lamb. And so it's kind of cool, uh, image to me. Um, that's real conquering. That's real victory. So let's go on. Verse 11, uh, and all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped. Again, worship, um, kind of a cool image as well, that the angels are, you could say, almost in an outer ring protecting everyone, singing amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we get those seven sort of spiritual spirits of God we've heard about before. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, strength. Okay, renamed here. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? Again, white robes meant new life, new life in Christ, baptism, um, but... Uh, I said to him, sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Again, the way of the lamb, who did the blood shedding? Who did the work, right? And uh, God does the work. It's by the blood of the lamb that we are victorious. It's not because we go out and take blood and we go out and conquer and, uh, countries and people and, and things like that. It's, it's not the way of Rome, the way of the beast. It's the way of the lamb. And so, again, contrast to the way of the world. So what is our role? What is our response, you could say, in the midst of all this? Well, it, it's basically faith and worship. No matter what comes our way, no matter what's unleashed on the world around us and is allowed to happen at this point in time in history or previous history or future history is we're called to have faith and we're called to worship, right? And so we know our task. We know our role. We know our response. 
And so verse 15, 16, for this reason they are before the throne of God and they what? They worship him day and night within his temple, so worship, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. So God gives them shelter. They don't give themselves shelter. God gives them shelter. And they will hunger no more and thirst no more. And the sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. So we get a picture in verse 14 um, and through 16 sort of, the, of a picture of pure satisfaction. Okay, especially in 16. There will be no more hunger. You will be never be thirsty. You will never be struck down by the sun. There's going to be no scorching heat. And you could go on, of course, and that, that goes on for the lamb is at the center. Um, but this is total satisfaction in God. People ultimately need to find their satisfaction in the Lord where there's no more hunger they don't thirst for anything. Like Christ said, hey, I'm going to give you living water, right? The woman at the well. I'll give you water that, that will never, you'll never get thirsty again. Again, consistency throughout the scriptures and who God is. And so there's constant protection. This is spiritual protection. This isn't physical protection. These folks might die for their faith. We might die for our faith. This is, this is spiritual protection, technically, is what, it's what we're talking about here. And let me wrap up just the, the chapter 7. We can talk a little bit about that last verse too. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we have this divine shepherd who gives nourishments to our bodies, our souls, comfort to our hearts. Um, this is true life, true eternal life. God comforts us, cares for us, and again, this is this is for eternity. It's not just for the uh, one little part in our life. Um, and I think again, who's at the the center? The lambs at the center. The lambs at the center of all the of everything that's going on. Center of worship. Center of the tribe. The tribes encampments. Even back in in the Old Testament days, and so a lot of great imagery there. Any thoughts, questions? I'll wrap up with a couple of things. Anybody have anything? Discussion? It's a lot. Doesn't mean you can keep it all track, you know, exactly perfectly. Um, but it's a lot. But hopefully we're understanding it. It's not scaring us too much. So, anything? Okay. Um, just a couple of other things, and I, and I spoke about them before. I just want to... Uh, bring us in, especially if you're sort of a, a nerd for research and things like that, is ernion uh, uh, er, is the, the Greek word used for lamb here, lamb at the center. That's used 29 times in the book of Revelation. Now, the normal word for lamb, even in the Gospels, was amnus. And um, the reason why this arneon is used is because it is used to identify Jesus in his glorified state, okay? The resurrected, the, the after the resurrection Jesus, okay? So it's kind of cool just to see the difference in language used there to identify 
this was the Lamb of God, but it's also, and other lambs were the lambs that really existed, but this is the Lamb of God. This is the, this is a whole different word used for Jesus' glorified, resurrected state. So, um, also, the Lamb of God is at the center of a throne, right, of the throne. He's like standing there, okay? The words used here is in a Greek word for, uh, is hestikos, and hestikos means standing upright, okay? And that's important, too, because the Hebrew has a double meaning for this sort of thing, is that Christ is standing continually. It means continually standing or perpetually standing or standing eternally. Is that kind of cool? It's kind of fun to go back and research that uh, original language and understand that that's a powerful thing. So that is, again, a counter narrative to, hey, Rome is eternal, right? They believed that Rome was eternal. Hey, no, Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is going to be standing a lot longer than that. After all the mountains and the rocks fall and the seas and everything horrible happens, whatever, Jesus is standing there. So, okay. So that's kind of my closing thoughts there. Any uh, Anything else? Okay. Um, we probably will look at eight chapter 8. Uh, we might look at the tribulation as well. Um, we're ahead of the game a little bit. Um, I want you to think about the term tribulation, those seven years that a lot of people have put into fictitious books and things like that, is we're already in the tribulation, technically, but we haven't heard anything about a seven-year period. And I did that intentionally, not to point it out, because we've talked about how you have to make stuff up and put stuff in the places in the Bible that just don't work and um, it's just not the biblical it's not a biblical understanding and so we'll talk about time that we will see sometimes later on but that that's we just don't get that whole tribulation thing it's just it's not really in revelation and so others have made that up and in light of their dispensationalist understanding of things um, so thought that was interesting as well. So we'll talk about the tribulation, what does that mean, and, and how can we think through that, and do we accept it or not accept it, and blah, 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 all that stuff. So Anyway, y'all have a great day. Thanks for being here, and uh, be bl have blessings to everyone.